So the cycle is push hard, play hard during the week to one's own detriment to recuperate and check out on the weekend. It's not helping <laughs> to solve the issue, right? It is a temporary band-aid fix to this culture of overwork that often leaves people, you know, emotionally spent, physically spent, and, and just physically unwell. Hi, and welcome to the new Rules of Business by Chief. I'm Carolyn Childers. And I'm Lindsay Kaplan, and we're the co-founders of Chief, the network of the most powerful women in business. Each episode, we unravel complex business trends and challenge preconceived notions of leadership. And the question we're exploring today is, should we stop being workaholics? And if so, how the hell do you even do it? It's such a timely and honest question, because while we all keep hearing so much about what we need to do to improve our work-life balance, or as you know, I often call it my work-life chaos, the truth is most businesses are facing real headwinds right now, and it feels like we all need to work more and work harder just to survive. Not to mention the rising sentiment coming particularly from certain men in Silicon Valley who are evangelizing, working 120-hour work weeks and sleeping on the factory floor. So it's easy to see why the workaholic is often not just the ideal employee, but also the ideal executive. Oh my God, I don't think I can roll my eyes back any farther. <laughs> well, some people claim that businesses have gotten soft with a lot of perks and scaled back hours. So what is the right direction? Should we start to refocus on hustle culture and overwork or flexibility? And humanity. Oh, the humanity. Oh, the womanity. <laughs> well, let's dig in. Take it away, Linz. Dr. Stephanie Creary is an assistant professor at Wharton who researches ways to create more inclusive and equitable workplaces. Thanks for joining us today, Stephanie. Oh, thank you for having me. It's so good to be here. I read that studies show over 80% of workers feel like they're burning out. A lot of people say it's a burnout epidemic. I would say that. And we just went through a pandemic that we thought redefined our relationship with work. But in fact, I think we all became more accessible with less barriers between work and life and Zoom and meetings and slacks. One could blame the pandemic, but I think it started before that. And I would love to hear how you think we got here. Oh, it absolutely started well before the pandemic. We talk about this culture of overwork or being always on or work hard, play hard ethos that permeates Western society and certainly many corporations because many corporations adhere to Western cultural norms. And by that, I mean, if we just very, there's so many ways to divide the world. So let's just for a minute take West versus East. When we think about East, we're often thinking about many countries in Asia, for example, versus the West. The Western world is US and the UK and you know North America, things of that nature. And how we have organized work and what sociologists say is, is we often adhere to what's called the Protestant work ethic, which is a legitimate thing. It's not just about the Protestant religion, but it does come from this idea that we are put here on this earth in order to work in order to create, in order to build society. And that's our number one mission or value. So 
if we think about how corporations came to be, especially during the industrial ages, they were actually created with this type of Protestant work ethic values in mind. And it's that work ethic values, which has now become so embedded deeply in, in organizational culture so that the always on mindset of work all the time, yep. put work above everything else. So how would you define overwork? In my work, we've talked about overwork in a number of ways. And typically, many scholars look at overwork in terms of number of hours worked. And I actually don't. I look at overwork as the experience that people are having that feels stressful or that feels depleting that can contribute to this experience of burnout. And so what do I mean by that? So if you think about overwork as a feeling, what that feeling can be is it can be a physical feeling of exhaustion. We know what that feels like. Your body just feels tired or it hurts, which is what an advanced version of overwork usually manifests as. Emotionally, you feel a bit vulnerable and raw and you might feel like you know, the anxiety and the depression, but also certainly the limited patience that you might have with others in your environment is often a sign of emotional overwork. And then definitely cognitive is when you just feel fuzzy. You just feel like you're not remembering things. You feel that you just feel a bit disorganized. So all of those become ideas of talking about overwork that I think are really important beyond just number of hours worked. And why do I feel like you're describing every day that I'm working? (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. But I also want to say this. The reason why I don't necessarily believe that overwork is about number of hours of work because many of us actually enjoy a lot of aspects of our work, right? Yes. I can spend like 12 hours working on a paper and it doesn't feel like overwork. I feel energized. I feel excited. I feel fulfilled. But then you give me 12 hours of something that I don't want to do. It feels like overwork. It's problematic when the ratio of time spent relative to the energy and the enjoyment you're getting out of the task is off. Yeah. And in your work, you talk about cycles of overwork and recuperation. Yeah. What do those cycles look like? Yeah. So we talk about vicious cycles of overwork and recuperation and something that we talk about as a virtuous cycle of activation and release. So if I talk about the vicious cycle, just imagine that as sort of like spinning iteratively sort of out of control and being stuck, right? So that's the vicious cycle is this idea of being stuck. Oftentimes, we get caught in this trap of a vicious cycle of overwork and recuperation such that we work hard, play hard, do too much at work during the week, engage in what we call excessive striving to our own cognitive, you know, emotional and sometimes physical detriment, Because what we're saying is, well, I just need the weekend. If I can just get to Saturday, I will be fine because then I'm going to do all the things that I really enjoy. I'm going to take a nap. I'm going to go on a bike ride. And so we use the weekends, for example, as a time of recuperation. The problem therein becomes once Monday morning hits, what are we doing again? We're overworking, overworking, overworking. So the cycle is push hard, play hard during the week to one's own detriment to recuperate and check out on the weekend. It's not helping (laughs) to solve the issue, right? It is a temporary Band-Aid fix to 
this culture of overwork that often leaves people, you know, emotionally spent, physically spent, and, and just physically unwell. And so what a virtuous cycle is, is it's a different kind of cycle. It's, a, you know, the idea that when I begin to feel like my brain doesn't feel as on today, when I start to feel like, you know what, I'm about to snap at this colleague again today, or when I begin to feel that, you know what, my back is starting to hurt, I need to go chill out. Before you pass the point of where it's out of your control and it creates longer-term consequences, you stop. So you experience that activation, that emotional, cognitive, or physical activation, and you let it go. You release. As leaders, how can we make sure that we are not overworking the people that are on our teams? So that takes a different mindset as we think about like, what does our workplace culture value? We start to learn that issues of overwork were not just our own personal issues. It was literally affecting all of our teams and it's a broader cultural phenomenon. What becomes important for leaders to recognize is, is sort of like, what's the end goal here? <laughs> what are we really truly trying to accomplish as a business? If it's about, we need to finish these three things by that day, and that is truly the deadline, well, then let's talk about what it would take to actually complete those tasks by that day. So, but instead what we've done is we've said, everybody needs to work nine to five and show up and, you know, show us that they're committed. And what that does is it creates a tension between being present and actually getting work done, right? And so a new way of organizing work would be working to the project and the deadlines and not controlling people's time, not controlling people's schedules. Because one of the things that we did learn during the pandemic is if people do have control over their schedules and they just know where they need to be, when they need to be there, what needs to get done by what date, we are able to make many of our productivity targets. It's the constant, I would say, experience that workers have suggested of being surveilled yeah. that is becomes taxing. I think a lot of people feel like overworking is the way to get ahead, right? And that it is rewarded. Mm -hmm. How do people get ahead without overworking, right? What are some strategies that people can take that they can still feel like they are achieving those goals? They are being rewarded for it, not working that nine to five grind. Yeah, well, part of this is, is a bit of a misnomer, right? So when we talk about excessive work hours, what we do know is not everybody's actually grinding work out <laughs> during those number of hours. Some of this is actually the cushion of FaceTime. This is giving off the idea that I'm present, so I'll go into my office, turn the light on, have some calls with people, have some lunch, do some other tasks, and I'm staying at work until 10 p.m. to give off the appearance that I'm fully committed. That's different, and that's happening a lot, and that's different compared to I get into my job at 8 a.m., I'm tied to the desk and not coming up for air until midnight. And what people are complaining about in this idea of culture of overwork is the former scenario, where they're just showing up for FaceTime purposes and not with respect to like cranking out tasks. And so it does become a problem if we're thinking about overwork as 
you know, we're working long hours and the entire time we're at work, we're, we're doing too much. In many cases, though, when you look at what is also what is often rewarded and promoted in organizations, it's some combination of the two. It's some combination of objective accomplishments, right? Tasks done excellently, but also relationships that you've built with people in your organization. And so I think the answer here is for leaders and organizations to really identify for themselves what are really the objective standards that need to be in place when we're making decisions about pay yes. and we're making decisions about promotion. And I don't think that those criteria, I actually know from my research, they're not always as specific as you or I might hope they are. And how does gender play into this? Because as a working mom, I know I have read the studies that show that, you know, working dads are rewarded when they step away yeah. to go to the soccer game and working moms are punished for it. So I know gender must play a huge role here. Well, it does. It does. And so let me sort of like take this to sort of two ways of thinking. So we're drawing on this idea of social roles in society. And what we know in most societies, not all, around the world, we see a cisgender woman's role as being in charge of the stuff that isn't about the workplace, right? So family and leisure and church, and that's the role that society has created for cisgender women in most societies around the world. And what they've created for cisgender men is go into the office, right? And so where we are now is Many societies, especially Western societies, are pushing back against this model, and particularly in heterosexual uh, families where they're in cisgender families where there's a woman and a man, what is happening disproportionately is women, particularly professional women, are doing all of that, right? Mm -hmm. So in addition to now trying to do all the professional tasks that are required when you enter into the workplace, they're still allocated the women's, you know, gender role outside the home. And so the challenge here is that we've not found yet a reprieve that effectively helps other partners, if there is another partner, understand that it's their job as well. Now, I'm talking so much about heterosexual and cisgender family structures because that's what we have research on. We don't know yet what this looks like in trans families or in homosexual, lesbian, gay couples. We don't know the answers to that, but it is a problem. Mm -hmm. And so what's happening is, is that Again, coming back to this notion of overwork and burnout, and we saw it escalate once again during the pandemic, is as women are burning out and having to, you know, step back if they have a choice to from many of their professional roles because they cannot manage all this stuff outside the home and all this stuff at work. It's like too much. And so it is a cultural problem. I think to your point around what does the research say about men? Yeah, so men are getting the reward, right? It's like, oh, he's such a good father. <laughs> he's such a great husband to help out. And I think what the research challenges us to think about is what would it look like if we didn't see men as helping out, right? We saw them as their social role was to actually take care of things outside of the home as well. So that's sort of where the conversation is right now is acknowledging that there are problems, but 
with respect to solutions, they have to be structural, they have to be cultural, and they have to be organizational if we're actually going to change that dynamic. I want our listeners to really think about the big picture and the financial implications of burnout. And so Mm -hmm. what do you see as the business consequences of burnout? And does it actually impact the bottom line? Yeah. So I think one of the most basic ways to think about this is, again, if we think about burnout as this emotional exhaustion, this physical exhaustion, this like mental exhaustion, that's telling you that people aren't able to do the job, right? At least two things happen when people aren't able to do the job. They call out, they don't come to work, or they show up at work and they don't do the job, right? So they- And that's the quiet quitting we talk about, right? Yes. That's the quiet quitting, which is also called presenteeism. Mm. So absenteeism is this calling out. And then presenteeism is showing up sick or showing up not in, not all the way in. And I always think of office space, that classic movie, as like the definition of quiet quitting. Yeah, absolutely. And so why is that costly? Well, if people aren't at work, the work isn't getting done. And so whatever you're trying to accomplish is getting slowed, delayed, backlogged, or whatever. And so that costs money because every day that you don't meet whatever your goals are is money spent without tasks being fulfilled. You know, there's always the old, you know, idea that you could just hire a temp. Good luck. But I'm sorry, many of us have jobs where you can't just hire a temp in without having to onboard and orient them. No one can just slide in. And as a matter of fact, what most organizations are doing is they're picking the next colleague and saying, can you take over someone's job? And I'm like, okay, yeah, that's not a good solution because now you're going to burn out that person because now they're doing their job on top of somebody else's. So that's why it's costly is when we don't have people to do the job, the work doesn't get done. And we are able to have a job because our jobs bring in some value to other people, whether we're talking about for-profit or nonprofit. The work doesn't get done and that's costly when work doesn't get done. Yeah. And so many companies say they provide work-life balance, but it's not the reality on the ground. So how do you separate out the actions companies can take that really make a difference and those that just look good on paper? Yeah. So when we're talking about organizations, it really is about fundamentally rethinking how work is done. So I mentioned that earlier with respect to Western ways of working versus Eastern ways of working. And what would it look like if we didn't micromanage people's schedules? We just actually agreed on what the work is and by when it needs to be done, right? And people need to manage their schedules around that. So that's something that's much more substantive type of change that isn't just good on paper, but that means that people have to agree that that is something that is valued. Now, lower hanging fruit, I've started to see this a lot. I haven't done this myself, but I've seen people start to write, and especially leaders in their email signatures, my working hours may not be your working hours. Don't feel compelled. I've seen lots of leaders do it, and I know the source of who's doing that matters. And so if your CEO or if your manager is writing that, then I think for the average worker, if they truly believe that the manager believes that, right, if it's not just a ploy, then they have permission or they can give themselves permission to not answer that email on a Saturday. It's so funny. I have a tendency myself to get a lot of work done at one in the morning. 
I am a night owl. I have to deal with my kids at night. And I I love to go through my inbox at 1 Mm a.m. I often am unproductive 9 a.m. Yeah. I'm not a morning person. So what I do is I will delay the reply. Mm -hmm. So my email will, you know, be scheduled to go out at nine. Yeah. And I find it funny because it's almost forcing the timeline of work to 9 a.m. Yeah. In a want to make sure that there is, you know, no urgency to respond to me from one in the morning. Well, here's the funny thing, right? So let's sort of Let's sort of examine why work hours are nine to five for a second, because I'm going to help you understand how arbitrary this is, right? It's made up. (laughs) One of the reasons why work hours are nine to five is because that is the daylight hours, right? So what happens when you work during the daytime? You don't have to turn on the lights, right? You conserve energy. And so while that might save money (laughs) to have us work between nine to five and we don't have to turn on the lights, which again, starts to go out the window once you're in a building that has, you know, no windows in it, right? You are turning on all the lights. You start to understand that if we were to imagine that work can get done at any time of the day and that we don't all need to be working nine to five, maybe there needs to be some overlap, then this becomes like a non-issue. And so what would it look like if we didn't think that work had to get done by nine to five? Because guess what? We're not all in the same time zone. So it's not even nine to five if you actually work across time zones. So I think the solution here is, is to really step back and understand it's about the work needs to get done and there's a date by the time the work needs to get done. The schedule's kind of arbitrary unless you need to have a meeting and then you all work on your schedules together. Because um, like you, I don't like 9 a.m. I don't even like 10 or 11 a.m. I like noon to 7 or 8 personally. Well, now we know. Let's never email Stephanie or Lindsay at 9 a.m. <laughs> Yes, absolutely. I'm like, I don't need a lunch meeting. Let's just have dinner as opposed to lunch. (laughs) Yeah. Then we can have a conversation over wine. Right. I prefer that. This podcast is called The New Rules of Business. So if you could write one new rule for business that would break this cycle of overwork right now and end the burnout epidemic, what would your new rule be? Yeah, I'll go back to help people to organize their work around deliverables and deadlines and let them manage their schedules in terms of how they're going to get it done. Because you have so rightly pointed out, we our body rhythms, our biological body rhythms are not the same. I do not think clearly at 9, 10, or 11 a.m. And I guarantee you I am not productive. But if I can work from 12 to 7 or 8, you will get the best Stephanie possible. And I think, Lindsay, you agree to that as well. So deliverables and deadlines and schedule around that versus letting the schedule drive the work. All right. Final question is, what's the best piece of leadership advice you've ever gotten? And the follow-up is, what's the worst piece of advice? So the worst piece of advice I ever received was just put your head down, ignore it, whatever it was, and keep working. That was the worst piece of advice I'd ever gotten. And I try not to give anybody else that advice. And I think the best piece of advice, leadership advice that I've ever received is understand what it is that you or other people value and what they are trying to accomplish and understand that your job as a worker and as a leader potentially 
is to help other people realize that aspect of themselves, that they feel that this organization might be helpful in helping them to achieve. Because it's when there's a misalignment between the person and their aspirations and their dreams and the organization's way of doing things and their values, that's when everything breaks down. And so the advice is get to know the people who work in your organization and what they really care and they value and help them to understand and yourself to understand how you can help one another to achieve whatever it is that you're trying to achieve. I love it. Perfect advice. Sticks the landing. Stephanie, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. This was great. That was Stephanie Creary, Assistant Professor of Management at the Wharton School of Business. All right. What do you think, Caroline? I know you couldn't join us live. Well, as she said, I guess my podcast recording hours may not be your podcast recording hours, Linz. <laughs> but I really did enjoy the conversation. And it sounds like the businesses that idolize overwork are more focused on presenteeism than getting work done and done well, like making sure you have butts in seats from nine to five because we need to follow the sun to conserve energy. I mean, I am all about conserving energy, but right now leaders need to think about conserving human energy. And obviously the key to that is time travel. Oh God, here we go again. (laughs) You know I write about this, Cece. When you focus on value, you can literally travel through time. (laughs) Organize work according to what needs to get done instead of micromanaging people's schedules. Cut the bureaucratic bullshit, and trust your team. And know your team. I was really struck by what Stephanie said about spending 12 hours working on a research paper was really exciting and enjoyable for her. But if I had to do that, I'd be pretty drained. Yes. (laughs) And it's really up to leaders to figure out how to create mobility for people by identifying what's energizing to them and then allocating the work accordingly. So it turns out preventing burnout doesn't just mean working less. Or working for the weekend. Oh God, don't start singing. Can we get the production <laughs> team to cue up some synths and some guitars? But as a rule, I don't take professional advice from 80s pop bands, especially ones named Loverboy. <laughs> Sage advice. I'm not going to ask why you're able to name drop the band. <laughs> Let's not get into that. And that's all for uh, this episode of the New Rules of Business by Chief. Don't miss out on all our Chief content. You can get more (laughs) podcast episodes by following the show on your favorite podcast app. And if you're more of a social media person, find us lip syncing and join the conversation on LinkedIn. But if you're ready to up the ante and you're thinking about becoming a member of the Chief Network, head to our website, chief.com, where you can and you absolutely should apply. As a member, you'll be connected with the world most powerful network of executive women and a few tunes by Lindsay. Doesn't that sound freaking awesome? Oh, no. (laughs) Thanks, Sharon Yee, Courtney Conley, Mercy Harper, Blaine Edens at Chief, and to our production team, Pod People, Rachel King, Matt Sav, Amy Machado, Danielle Roth, Madison Lusby, Hannah Pedersen, and Michael Aquino. Our music is by Colin Hatch. I'm Carolyn Childers. And I'm Lindsay Kaplan. Thanks for listening. Thank you.